And please turn in them back to John chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 38 through 44 this morning. Page 898 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 11, verses 38 through 44. Page 898 in the Pew Bible. We have had lots of death. Now we finally get to the life. Lazarus was dead to begin with, but not to end with. This story that is all about death is ultimately a story that is all about life. And we're still trying to sort out what that life really is. What this whole life thing is really about. I confessed last week how much I struggle to believe that life is found only and ultimately where Christ claims. And more on that this week. Remember that the name Lazarus is a shortened form of the name Eleazar, which means he whom God helps. So how does God help Lazarus? That's what we're going to see this morning. What does Lazarus need? That's what we're going to see this morning. And as we do so, we should be asking ourselves, be asking yourself, what, what do you need? What do you honestly really believe or think that you need? How do you want God to help you? And what sort of help would make you happy? This story can help us. Uh, for this is a story of a sign. 1993, I'm a child of the early 90s. Did this again Thursday, I'm doing it again, I don't know why. 1993, Ace of Base, number one chart-topping mega hit. I saw the sign and it opened up my eyes. I loved that song. I was nine years old. I saw the sign and it opened up my eyes. Right? Signs signify. Signs reveal. Signs open up eyes to something else. Because signs, as we've been discussing, are not the point. Signs point to the point. And in the book of John, these supernatural workings of Jesus are never called miracles. They're always called signs. And there are seven of them. And this is the final and climactic sign. What does it signify? What does it reveal? What does it point to? What's the point? Hey, what's the point of anything and everything? Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever feel that there's no point uh, to anything and everything, uh, to your life even? What's the point? John tells us the point of everything here. He has told us what this episode is about, this story of life and death, all the way back in verse 4. But he hasn't mentioned the word again until now in verse 40. Circling back to the center, drawing us back to the point. In verse 4 and in verse 40, and thus everything in between, everything before and after, it's all about glory. Glory. Christ is named the Word of God in the very first verse of this book. Words reveal and relate. Christ came to reveal and relate God to us, the God of all glory. And so John says in the beginning, in 1.14, we have seen His glory. And we again have that same hugely important word in the center of our passage. That word that is also supposed to be the center of our lives, but often, so often, is not. The glory of God. See, this is ultimately why Christ has come. He has come to reveal God's glory. That's the whole point of this story. And that's the whole point of this book. And that is revealed to us in a number of ways. 
There's an unnecessarily obnoxious term. Again, I like to use these to try to impress you so that you'll keep paying me. Right, there's this term in, in, scripture, in the study of Scripture called an inclusio. It just sounds obnoxious and annoying. Just You hear the word inclusion there, but it's a helpful concept. Think of it like bookends. An inclusio is a literary device, a writing technique, where the theme or the main idea of the story is stated at the beginning and at the end. The outside tells you what the inside is about. And many will argue that verses 4 and 40 and glory act as the inclusio for this story. And don't forget that it is this sign, the very last sign, and the very first sign that both emphasize God's glory. Remember, John chapter 2, the first sign, water to wine, joy. Verse 11, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So the bookends of the first and the final sign are both all about glory. And that signifies to us that everything in between is all about glory. So there's this bookends within the story. And then there's this bookends within. Remember, John is a two-part book. We're finishing the first part, chapters 1 through 11, often called the book of signs, preparing us for part two of the book, which is often called the book of glory, as we get to the sign, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So first sign, glory, final sign, glory, last part of the book, all about the glory of God revealed through the work of the Son of God. That's what this is all about. This is what I want to convince you of today. That, that, that your life is meant to be all about. And thus, in the midst of whatever you're facing and feeling right now, whatever successes or struggles, triumphs or troubles, this is actually what you need to see and understand and rest and rejoice in the glory of God. I don't know about you, but at least me, I am so often caught up and consumed with that which is so small. And then we end up feeling sad and small because we were made for something so big. We were made for the glory of God himself. And it is only there that we will find the life and joy, the identity and the fulfillment that we seek. Not in self. The more that I find it in self, the more, the more that I try to find it in self, the more that I don't find it. The more that by the grace of God I can be turned outward to seek and find it in him if we can see his glory this morning, if we can turn our gaze and focus off of ourselves and our little glory to him and his big glory, well, we can be drawn just a little bit closer to him and thus to life and joy and peace. And that's, that's the goal. So let's look at and let's look for the glory in this story. This is the glory of God revealed in the work of the Son of God for the purpose of creating faith in the people of God, that we might live. Four points, and then a brief concluding fifth point of application and exhortation. I want to consider four ways that God's glory is revealed through this story. Point number one, we're going to see God's glory revealed in Christ's passion. Then point number two, we'll see it revealed in Christ's patience. Then in Christ's prayer. Fourth, we'll see it in Christ's power as he speaks and brings the dead to life we want to see how good and glorious this christ is and then point number five we want to believe 
and see God's glory in Christ. So let's read this short passage. Pay attention to Christ. Pay attention to what this reveals about the God of all glory. John chapter 11. We have gone through Lazarus is sick. Jesus waits. Lazarus dies. Jesus comes. Jesus has talked with Martha, revealed himself as the resurrection and the life. Jesus has talked with Mary. And now Christ finally approaches the tomb. John 11, verse 38 through 44. Pay attention as I read, for this is what God wants to say to you today. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. If you would bow with me and let's, let's go to this Lord first in a word of prayer. Father, please, show us your glory. Father, we have just read of what your word can do. Father, your word here gives physical life to Lazarus. It is that same word that we have before us contained in these scriptures that can give spiritual life to dead hearts. Father, show us your glory. Father, I cannot effectively, spiritually communicate that glory apart from your spirit. Father, our sufficiency, my sufficiency is entirely and only in you. Please, Father, help us. Help me to preach and proclaim your glory. Father, help us to hear and look at and believe and see your glory. Father, accomplish much good in this time. Only you can do that. We cannot. Father, draw us to Jesus Christ and help us to find life in him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Point number one, we want to first see God's glory revealed in Christ's passion. We talked about this last week from verse 33. Well, we have the same word from verse 33 repeated again in verse 38. Look at it. As Jesus approaches Lazarus' tomb in 38, it says he is deeply moved again. Same word as 33, where we discussed in detail last time how in the Greek this word is not a sympathy word, but an animosity word. Jesus is not first sad, but he is mad. And so originally, as I was working on this sermon, I had the first point as see the glory of God in Christ's anger. But then I realized that I had three Ps following that. And so, of course, I had to complete the alliteration. Uh, I first went with peak. See God's glory in Christ's peak. P-I-Q-U-E. That just means irritation or anger. But using that word would be deserving of irritation or anger. So we're going with passion. I want you to see Christ's 
passion and what this reveals to us about the God that he reveals. And so with the word passion, we can more broadly include all that is going on here within Christ. Of course, he is the sympathetic Savior. Of course, he is grieved by the grief of Mary. But more than that, praise God, more than that, he is moved first, not by Mary's grief, but by the ultimate cause of Mary's grief. And the ultimate cause of all the grief that has plagued and poisoned his good creation, sin and death. Jesus is angry at death. Jesus, the perfect person, the image of the invisible God, the one we were originally created to image. He, as the perfect person, gets angry at the right things. What is it that, that gets us upset and angry? But what we're seeing in him is not first sympathy, but enmity. And that is really, really good news for us. We had the point last week, quite simply, that Christ loves his people. And then on Thursday, from Romans 13, 8, we considered this. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. And so we've been working hard to rightly understand and define what true love is. It is our affection uh, and action. Love is to seek the good of the loved. You do not actually love someone, regardless of what you say, if you are not intentionally and actively seeking their good. And that's precisely what Christ is doing here. We are seeing both his great affection for his people and his great action on behalf of his people. Love seeks the good. We all recognize, right, that death is the bad. So to seek our highest good, to love us by definition, must include his doing something about our death. And that's what this whole story is about. That's where we begin to see the glory of God revealed in Christ's passion and Christ's anger directed at death. So yes, there is grief, but there is first rage, indignation, fury at the bad that is death. One commentator describes Jesus here as swept by a tempest of anger. I like that language. Calvin very famously says about this passage that that Christ approaches the tomb here not as some idle spectator, but as a champion preparing for a contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again for the violent tyranny of death that he had to overcome stands before his eyes. So, in a sense, Christ is approaching this tomb. He comes as combatant. He comes for a conflict, a contest with death itself. And he is angry. And that is glorious. Pause. Because definitions matter. It's clear that many people use the word love for many things that are not love at all. So we strive to try and understand love biblically. What about glory? Do do we know what glory is and why glory matters? I've claimed that this is a story about glory. I've made this whole sermon about glory. Well, what is it? And why is it such a big deal? Why is this what you so desperately need? Well, let's let's review quickly to make sure we understand what this is. Uh, The Greek word we've talked about before is doxa. We talk about the doxology. That's coming from this 
word. We've talked a lot about the Hebrew word kabod. And in Hebrew, the word for glory is a word that means weightiness. So in Hebrew, kabod is a weight word. And in Greek, doxa is a worth word. We're talking about the weight of God and we're talking about the worth of God. When the Old Testament talks about God's glory, it talks about His weightiness in the sense of His significance. The weightiest thing is the most significant thing. I've talked before, I love the illustration of Jim Glory, right? Jim Glory, the biggest, strongest, weightiest guy is the most glorious. I was humbled recently. I lifted with both Anthony Esposito and with Angelo, and they're both stronger than me. And it was humbling because I'm prideful and competitive and arrogant. So they're both bigger and stronger. They both have more glorious gym weight. So when I'm benching and I drop the weight on the racks, it's kind of like tink, 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 tink. Right? It's not that big. When they are benching, they drop it. It's like boom. Right? You, you feel the weight. Right? That's weightiness. That's, that's gym glory. Right? The sun is the weightiest thing in our solar system. Therefore, it's the center Everything revolves around and depends upon the sun. God is the weightiest thing in reality. Everything depends upon and revolves around him. He is great. He is sun and center. That's the Greek concept of glory. Doxa is about value and worth. God's glory is his infinite worth. He is the worthiest thing. He is the thing of most value and of infinite worth. And so just most generally, uh, glory is God's everything greatness. It's not one aspect or attribute of God. It's the sum total of all that he is as the best and most beautiful being, as the purest and most perfect person. Glory is the infinite excellency of his divine essence, as it has been put before. And there's a lot of overlap between God's glory and God's Holiness. God's holiness is also often defined as his summary attribute. It's all that he is as God, his otherness and transcendence, his beauty and excellency, his moral purity. Remember, holiness is the only attribute of God that is cubed, that is repeated three times. Isaiah 6, 3, you know it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his. And we'd expect holiness, but that's not what it says, right? The holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. And so often in scripture, holiness is used more internally for all that God is in himself as God. And glory is used more externally as the display of all that God is as God. And so the glory of God, most simply, is the infinite greatness, weightiness, worthiness of God put on display. And so Jesus can say there in verse 40 that you would, you could see the glory of God. That's what we're trying to see here. We're trying to see. I'm trying my desperate best to communicate how great and good, how beautiful and big God is. For so often, our God, and by that I mean the God, God as we tend to think of Him, is just far, far too small. We think too little and lightly of the God who stands at the center of everything. 
whose glory stands at the center of everything, who is supposed to be our sun and center. And so this is why we study the Scriptures, the living and active Word that reveals and relates this God to us through the revelation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is making this God known to us. And I'm trying to convince myself and you that this is, this is what you need. A sight of this, a vision of the all-glorious God who is light and life. To begin to see and to read your life, all the biggest things and all the smallest things, in light of His light, through the gaze of His glory. And that glory is being so beautifully revealed to us here through Christ's response to the reality of death. He hates it. And He's going to do something about it. Here we have the king of kings come to confront the king of terrors. The great enemy, the last enemy, the foe that we were hopeless and helpless in the face of. We were created for life. We all have that inborn drive for life. We all want to live. And yet, for every one of us, that desire will be inevitably frustrated. As death will come today, or tomorrow, or someday in the future, it ultimately makes little difference. It comes for us all, ending all of us, ending all of this, ending life. There's a line in a poem by the great poet uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins that says, All life death doth end. All life death does end. That's true. And that is bad. Death is bad. It is the bad. And thus, in this is love. 1 John 4.10 Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, sent His Son to die for our sins, seeking our highest good and thus solving our highest bad, sin and death. That's love. That's what love does. That's glory. The God of all glory, that infinitely high and transcendently other God who created and sustains all life, He comes to die. The author and God of life comes to die to solve our sin problem. See the glory of God revealed in the love of God that sends His Son to die and defeat the death that He hates. Christ deeply moved at this tomb. His passion reveals much to us about this all-glorious God. Point number two. See God's glory in Christ's patience. Back to the text. Look at 38 again. Jesus comes to the tomb. The end of 38 tells us that it was a cave and a stone lay against it. Right? So make sure we don't think of this as a hole in the ground with a headstone like we're so used to today. Now, most likely, this would have been a cave in the side of a hill. We can find, we have many examples of these uh, throughout Israel uh, today. Uh, generally, there would have been, you know, the, there's the opening, and you would walk in, and there was kind of one main room, and there would be a big table, a big stone slab on the middle. The body would be wrapped in these giant shrouds stuffed with spices, as we'll see uh, the odor, and then the body would just be left there to, to decompose on the table. Then off of that main center room, there would be a number of other smaller rooms or often more just generally little compartments or cubbies. 
Once the body had decomposed, the bones would be taken, deposited in an ossuary, basically a little a bone box. And again, we have found tons of these, and then put in one of these side compartments. That's, that's probably something like what Jesus is approaching. He's approaching this, this tomb cave. Lazarus' body would have been lying in that central room, and a stone would have been covering the opening. And it's that stone that takes center stage in verse 38. Look at it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Brief, blunt, not a request, a command. But second point is God's glory in Christ's patience. Where is that coming from? Well, the rest of verse 39. Martha. The Martha, verse 5, that Jesus loves. The Martha, verse 27, who has beautifully and boldly confessed her faith. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That same Martha still doesn't entirely understand everything yet. She still doesn't entirely understand what Christ has been saying. As she says there, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. I prefer Martha's response in the King James, uh, Lord, by this time he stinketh. That's what it says. He stinketh. I'm going to start... Declaring to Melissa, wife, by this time Vera stinketh. Now that's, that's just, it's just, I, I like the King James. But the ESV softens the language a little bit too much. I don't really know why. Doesn't, she, she doesn't say there will be an odor. Literally, the Greek, simply and graphically, Martha says, Lord, he already stinks, for it's been four days. That's, that's just literally what it says. Martha's words here emphasize the utter impossibility and absurdity of what Jesus is about to attempt. This does not happen. This cannot happen. The dead do not and cannot live again. And her words also reveal that there's just still that little bit of lingering unbelief in her. Again, it's, it's hard to blame her. Right? We would have done no better. We often do no better as we continue to struggle to believe, to trust the Lord, even when we have so much more information and revelation than Martha does. But I want to draw attention to this fact, her lingering unbelief, our lingering unbelief, to draw attention to how Christ responds to it. He's patient. He's compassionate and kind. His anger is not directed toward her. He does not throw up his hands in frustration like we do when we have to repeat something for the hundredth time. Christ is infinitely more patient and compassionate with us than we are with one another. And I'm, I am smarter than my children, right? like in a, in a sense. Actually, my hope is that they are all and will be smarter than me. They're starting to demonstrate that. Right, Tess, my three-year-old can beat me in the game Spot It. Right? Like, I try my best and she can beat me in Spot It. But I'm smarter than them simply in the sense that I'm older than them and I have more experience than them and thus more knowledge than them. And so I can be tempted toward frustration when they don't get things as quickly as I foolishly think that they should. What do you mean, three-year-old? You are not yet perfectly patient and obedient? I have to teach you and discipline you again? How dare you, three-year-old? Right, we can get frustrated with our kids. You know, that's dumb. I'm dumb. They're smarter than me. I know far more than her, and yet I myself am far from perfectly patient and obedient. But the point I want to make is that the distance between myself and my three-year-old is nothing compared to the distance between myself and the all-glorious God 
of all. And yet he, the God of all power, the God of all wisdom, is perfectly patient with me. Christ here is patient with Martha's unbelief. And that is a revelation of the glory of our God. Yes, he is all powerful, but he is also all patient, omnipotent and omnipatient, making up a word. He's omnipatient with us, his children, with we of little faith. And yet he of great glory is patient with us, kind and compassionate toward us. He cares for us. He is Exodus 34, 6, the thing most repeated about God in the Old Testament. This this phrase, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness. That's what he's like. That's where you see his glory. He's displaying to you how great he is in how good he is towards you. How patient he is towards you. And we see that in his patient response to Martha. His loving response to her lacking response. Look at it in verse 40. Yes, there's some correcting and teaching here. But note that he's teaching something. And he is saying something that he has already said. And he's gladly and patiently saying it again. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And he already told her this back in verse 4. This illness is for the glory of God. He told her. He's already told her in detail what that means and how it would happen in verses 23 through 26. Your brother will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's glory. Dying yet living, what could be more glorious than that? Oh, Martha, did I not tell you this? Let me tell you again. That's glory in patient repetition. We saw Paul on Thursday write to the Romans in 1515 that he writes to them by way of reminder. And how often do we need these reminders? How gracious and patient is God uh, with us to keep reminding us, to keep comforting us, to keep teaching us, to keep pointing us and drawing us back to himself. Listen, parenting is patience. Much of parenting is simply patient repetition. I've told you, you are a child. I love you. Let me tell you again. Let me tell you again. Let me tell you again. Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And in so doing, as he shows that compassion to his children, he is showing his glory to us. See the glory of God in the patience of the Son of God with his weak and struggling sheep. He has that same patience toward you. He loves Martha, and so he teaches her. He is patient with her, and so he points her to what she needs. See his glory in his patience, and see his glory in the fact that he patiently points her to glory. Point number three. Let's see God's glory in Christ's prayer. Let me be brief and opportunistic here. Let me take this opportunity for a prayer plug in a moment. But first, a couple of quick observations. Look at verse 41. The stone is rolled away. 
We read, And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that you may believe, that they may believe that you sent me. I just, a first, a most obvious and basic, but most important observation. Jesus prays. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, prays. Dare we then to believe that we can live without prayer? Often in the past, those who have gone before us, they used to talk about prayer as breath, praying as breathing. You obviously cannot physically leave, live, you cannot physically live without breathing. And yet how often do we believe that we can spiritually live without praying? Jesus prays. Church, how desperately do we need to pray? Jesus prays here as petition. Of course, prayer is petition, but prayer is so much more than petition, so much more than asking things. Note the tense of the verb at the end of verse 41. Look at the end of verse 41. He says to the Father, I thank you that you have heard me. So in some way or another, Jesus has already prayed, or most likely, he's, he's just constantly Praying. That's impossible, you say. Well, Paul commands us in the verse after the shortest verse in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. We, entirely dependent, are to exist in a state of constant dependence and communion with the God who is life. No, not always actively voicing words of prayer. Sorry, I can't talk with you. I've got to pray right now. No, but always humbly depending upon, clinging to, communing with the God who is our life. Always Christ is perfectly and constantly in communion with his Father. Christ prays. Christians pray. Christians, church, we must pray. And I've been convicted concerning my lack of prayer uh, for me, pray, uh, For me, reading is easy. I can read the Word all day. No issue. I haven't missed reading the Word in, in years. Again, that's not that impressive. I just I love to read. I love to read the Word. I, I struggle more with, with prayer. I, I'm aware of that. I'm convicted about it. I'm working on it by the grace of God. I'm convicted also about our lack of prayer. Again, as I'm having to learn that I'm utterly and entirely dependent upon God and His power. I have no power no sufficiency, no ability to accomplish anything of spiritual, eternal value. He has all power, all sufficiency, all ability, and he works through means. He works through his word. We know that. He works through the prayer of his people. What then do we expect if we are prayerless? Right? Prayerless is powerless. A prayerless is godless. For prayer is how we speak to Him. Life is relationship. At the very heart of relationship is communication. We commune through communication. God speaks to us through His Word. We speak back to God through prayer based on and in response to His Word. And I can't even if that's actually true. What a privilege. God Himself speaks to us. And we get to speak to him, and he listens to us. Most of you don't even want to listen to me. God, I wasn't passive-aggressive. We, just, we get tired and long sermons, and uh, no, listening to sermons are hard. 
He listens to us. That's, that should just blow our mind. Right? We struggle to listen to one another. God himself listens to his people. What a privilege. Right? Growth in prayer starts with seeing the grace and privilege of prayer. It's moving from having to pray to getting to pray. From prayer as burden to prayer as blessing. The God of the universe hears us. The God of the universe is mindful of us. It's unbelievable. It's an unimaginable privilege. Church, we must, we must pray together. I don't know how to go about it best. I don't. I don't know what best to do. I'm trying. I don't want to load up your schedule and take up another night of your week or, or force you to commute again. And I'm open to better ideas and suggestions. But I will be upstairs at 1 o'clock after the service leading prayer for an hour. It's really been a blessing for me to just get to sit and focus and to be edified by the prayers of the saints following the service uh, so far. So yeah, I invite you to join us upstairs 1 o'clock following the service. Christians, pray. The, the, the church must pray. That part can't be denied. But for now, see the glory of the triune God in the communion of the Son with the Father. And see it also in what He prays for. Look at 42 again. The beginning of that's amazing. He starts off saying, You always hear me. What a great encouragement to us that should be to pray. Uh, we're in Isaiah, come to Sunday school. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Because of our sins, iniquities, he does not hear. That's never the case with Christ. That's why we need Christ. Christ, our mediator. Christ, our intercessor, the one who goes between God and man, the one who is God and man, who, Hebrews 7.25, always lives to make intercession for us. He is always heard. And that then gives us great hope in our weak and feeble and often selfish and sin-tainted prayers. They are heard, we are heard, because we are in Christ, and Christ is always and so you, like me, may struggle to pray. Take great comfort and encouragement to pray in light of the fact that Christ is always heard. We can pray boldly and confidently, though weakly and imperfectly, because of Christ. But note why Christ prays boldly and confidently and loudly here. Not so that God can hear him, not for his own benefit, but for our benefit, for the benefit of the others around him. He says, that they may believe that you sent me. Believe in verse 40. Believe in verse 42. Glory is at the center of the story. Remember, belief and faith are the same thing. Those are then how we see the glory and how we live. That's the whole point of the story. That's the whole point of the book. John 20, verse 31, again and again. These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That's John's purpose statement. That's Christ's purpose. And note that Jesus says there in verse 40, 
believe and see God's glory, John in his purpose statement says, believe and live. Put those two things together and we see that it's seeing God's glory that is life. If believing is seeing glory and believing is living, then it must be in some way a sight of that glory, a sight of the glory of the God of life that is life. And so what a prayer this is then. Jesus himself prays for us. We're going to see him do it again in chapter 17. But just as he points Martha to what she most needs, he is pointing us to what we most need. Again, what do you think that you most need? How do you want God to help you? Christ is directing us to how we need help, uh, to what we most need. We need a sight of the glory of God. Christ then is truly loving us, truly seeking our good in seeking our highest good. His glory is revealed in pointing us to glory through His prayer. Point number four. Let's look briefly at God's glory in Christ's power. Because here it is. Here's the point. And for once, the length of one of my last sermon points fits. Because look at verse 43. Just look at how short it is. Just simple, matter of fact. This, this is the climax. There has been enough weeping. Now it's time for acting. Enough honor and credit has been given to death. Now comes the life. You know, words just fail to describe this. I cannot do it. But, but neither Jesus nor John seek to wow us or impress us with some grand display or elaborate show. Verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Verse 44. And he does. It's insane. It's absurd. It's impossible. Unless it's true. Verse 43, and God said, verse 44, and it was so. This is the new creation. This is the powerful, effective, irresistible, sovereign, life-giving call of Christ. And as many, as many have quipped, it's a call so powerful that Christ had to specify Lazarus or all the dead would have leapt to life. And John has gone out of his way to emphasize the deadness of Lazarus. He's the sister of the dead man. He's the stinking dead man. The smelly dead four days man. He is dead, dead. But then the word of God. The living and active word of God. Jesus Christ introduced as that word in the very first verse. Here demonstrates the unstoppable power of that word. Even death cannot stop it. Nothing can resist it. It does not return void. It will accomplish all God's purpose. And the God of life's ultimate purpose is life. And that requires that he deal with death. And that's what he does here. Praise God that he does that here. What glory is revealed here in his power. The king of terrors. You have not yet truly considered death if it has not yet ever terrified you. You have not yet truly sought to comprehend the end. The end of you. The end of existence. And then the question of what's after the end. In light of the guilt and the sin that we all know is within. That we all know we must answer for. And the reality of the hell that awaits all apart from Christ. 
You have not yet considered that if you haven't experienced the terror of that. But here the king of kings not only confronts the king of terrors, but he kills the king of terrors. And what power must be required to vanquish this greatest of foes? To vanquish sin, Satan, and death itself. All of our efforts, thousands of years of human history and progress, all our science and medicine and vaccines and obsession with safety, our obsession with fitness and health and eating organic or whatever it is, all of it is and ultimately does nothing more than delay death. We are all of us dying and decaying every day and nothing can ultimately stop it. Only delay it. Nothing can ultimately reverse it. Only retard it. All of our power, all of our ingenuity, the the combined wisdom and technology of the whole mass of humanity for our whole history, nothing. Nothing. No progress in defeating death. And here Christ comes and he speaks a word. He just utters a word. What power! Death reversed. Death defeated. Decay reversed. Life. Verse 43 literally says that Christ cried out in the Greek with a megaphone. A great, loud, large, big voice. You have in your pocket, or you're staring right now at a telephone voice or sound. And many think that the Greek word for voice, this word that John uses, phone, comes from the Greek word which means to shine, to shed light, to make clear. And that's exactly what Christ's powerful word does here. It shows forth God's glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but Christ, the only God, at the Father's side, He has made him no. Jesus is the shining forth and the showing forth of the glory and greatness of God. And please, please, please don't miss that it happens here. It happens here through his word. And words are everything. Words are life. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. We must wield our words carefully and well because they are powerful. But here we see that uh, uh, quite literally true as Christ's powerful word brings life. His word, 663, that he says he speaks to us that are spirit and life. And those words are found in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. This is why We preach and pray and sing and say God's words to one another, believing and trusting uh, that these are the means that God's powerful, life-giving Spirit works through. My only hope as a person and a preacher, my only hope is to keep preaching God's Word and keep praying and trusting that God will work through it to reveal Himself to us, show us His glory that we might find life in Him. Church, these are powerful words. Treat them as such. Use them. Give yourself to them. Speak them to one another. See God's glory revealed in His Word. See God's glory revealed in Christ's powerful Word as Lazarus 
is called out of the darkness of the tomb into the light of day. Out of the darkness of death into the light of life. Called to and by the resurrection and the life himself. This is what we need. As, look at the end of the verse there. It's kind of funny in verse 44. Lazarus would have been tied up. He would have been bound. He was bound head to foot. So there would have been some weird, awkward, bumbling, stumbling. It's not like he's grandly stumbling. He's like, it would have been weird. He has to be unbound so that he can actually walk free. He is there in verse 40, the perfect picture of us, subject to the kingdom of death. Ephesians 2, 1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6 says, It is God who makes us alive together and raises us up with Christ. Listen, that means, Christian, that what Jesus does here physically for Lazarus is no more amazing than what he has done spiritually for you. This is a sign. This is a physical sign of a spiritual reality. We were all of us dead, and we all of us required no less of a gracious and powerful word to live. That's glory. You want a miracle? That's the miracle. A dead heart made alive entirely by the gracious word of God. There's nothing more miraculous than that. Rejoice in the glory of God that gives the dead life. He did it for me and he can do it for you. And how how does that happen? How do you get and gain the life that is found only in Christ? Last thing and we're done. Brief note of application. Point number five. Believe. That's, That's the whole point. Faith, believe and see God's glory in Christ. We say today that seeing is believing. Christ says in verse 40 that believing is seeing. Faith, the simple and complete trust in Him. Faith, the the movement of the whole soul toward and into Christ. Faith is the the God-given sight of our sin and death that we deserve and then the God-given sight of the God-sent Son to take on our sin and death in our place. That's how we live. Death must be dealt with. Either you will deal with your death or Christ will deal with your death for you. And yes, the physical resurrection of Lazarus is a picture of our spiritual resurrection. But first and foremost, it is the sign and pointer of the sign to come. The death and resurrection of Christ himself. And it's different than Lazarus' resurrection. Lazarus would die again. Can you imagine? He had to die twice. But he was in Christ, so again, I guess not that bad. But still, he died twice. Christ was raised, though with a spiritual body never to rise again. And He lives that we might die uh, to sin and to self and live forever with Him. He rises again as the conquering King, victorious in His contest with death. Yes, He died, but that's not the whole Gospel. He rose again. He lives. And what if that's true? What if God became man? What if this guy showed up 2,000 years ago and said, hey, by the way, I'm God. By the way, whatever you do with me is going to determine your eternity. Oh, I'm going to take all of your sin that deserves an eternity in hell. I'm going to take all that. I'm going to pay for all that. I'm going to die naked on a cross. But then I'm going to come back and defeat death itself. Insane. What if he did it? Then nothing else matters. Nothing matters but him. He is everything. 
He is everything that you need. He is life. And a sight of, and a life fixed on His glory is what you need. I want you to notice one last thing. Then I'm actually done. This is important. Don't miss how the story ends. Because doesn't it feel a bit abrupt? What's missing from the end? Do you notice it? Do you wonder? What's missing? It's any reaction from, or any word about Mary, or Martha, or Thomas, or, or even Lazarus himself. Lazarus lacks a single line in this whole long story. Wouldn't you want to know what Lazarus is thinking at that moment? Wouldn't it be interesting to hear from the dead four uh, days man now alive? Hey, Lazarus, where was your soul the last four days? Hey, what did it feel like to die? What did it feel like to come back to life? Nothing like that. No idle speculation. Why does this story, full of all of these other characters, suddenly end with no mention at all of any of these other characters? These characters that have been central to the story, they just fade into the background. And that's entirely the point. That's, of course, because there is only one that is central to the story. There's only one that is central to your story. They are important. They are players. They're part of the story, but they're not the point of the story. They're not the focus. And here's what you and I desperately need to learn, but that is so difficult to learn and even more difficult to live. You are not the point. You are not the focus. I am not the point. I am not the focus. And so many of my problems result from my sinful and stubborn attempts to insist that I am still the point and the focus. To continue to try and seek to make my life about myself and the satisfaction and fulfillment of what that self has determined to be my desires, my demands, my needs. I will be happy if I have this. It is so sneakily easy to make all of life and even all of the Christian life, all about me. When what this story is showing us here is that it's all about him. And the goodness of it being all about him. Because he is the all-glorious one. Our goodness is wrapped up in his glory. The two are not opposed to one another. Look at how his glory is revealed in his anger toward our death. His patience and His care for us. His prayer for us. His power poured out on our behalf. What we need is a sight, a fixed focus on that glory. I need my focus turned off of myself toward my Savior as I learn to truly believe that He is truly life and joy and pleasure. That's what we just read. It's 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all... With unveiled, unveiled face, faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You catch what that verse says? We've just seen how glorious the all-glorious Christ is. God's word says there that we are in some form or fashion being transformed into that same glory. We are being made like that. His glory is our good. His glory results in our glory. And it starts with a look. Look to Christ. This Christ by faith. Believe that He is who He claims uh, to be. Give up your sin and yourself and give yourself over to Him and you will find all that you are looking for in the things of this world. Peter opened us with the chief end of man. What is it? It's to glorify God. 
and enjoy him forever. That's something big enough for you to live for. Glory is what you need. This text makes it very clear that glory, uh, that Christ is where that glory is found. Let's pray. Father, help us, please. Give us the eyes that we need to see your glory. Open the often closed uh, spiritual eyes of our hearts. Father, if what we need is what I so often need is for you uh, to forcefully remove my gaze and my focus off of myself, to turn it to you. Father, please do that for us. As we so often sing, please show us Christ. Father, convince us that he is life. Convince us that we were made for his glory. Convince us that that is where our good is found. And Father, I pray that you would now, by your spirit, please work through your word um, to draw us to you. I ask you to do what we cannot do for ourselves, Lord. And we ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.